Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 37, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. So I'm Rick. Of course, I'm author of The God Who Fights For You and last year's Spiritual Grit and its two companion devotions, one for adults, one for teenagers. And I'm the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, which uh, I believe, uh, if if I'm remembering this right, now almost 150,000 people have a copy of that Bible. In the world, and and uh, it is the stories we get back from people who read are using this Bible. It's it's not like we've changed fundamentally the Bible. We've just added special features to it that help to highlight and spotlight how Jesus is the focus of all of Scripture, including the Old Testament. And these are these special features are not in any other Bible that's out there. Um, not because we were so smart that we knew that these things no other Bible had. In fact, after the fact, we learned some of the things we created, other Bibles didn't have. And so I think uh, that this Bible has had such an impact because it has really drawn people into a more intimate and broad relationship with Jesus. It has, it is in, for, in some cases, uh, helped rescue the Old Testament from the dustbin for people because it has helped them to see how it's all one narrative. So if you don't have a Jesus-centered Bible, um, or you know someone that's, that's close to you that, that uh, doesn't have one, and it, it, it doesn't... Uh, it, a lot of the stories we hear it, where people buy a Jesus-centered Bible, and they, they say, well, I have my regular Bible that I've had for a long time. I'm not going to give that up. But I'll, I'll try and get this Bible and see what I think. It ends up slowly muscling out <laughs> the old Bible that, that, that you, you always hung on to. I always had an old Bible that I always read before, uh, I started reading from my own Jesus Center Bible, and it just shoved out of the way, my, the Bible that I had been reading from for 20 years. So that, it can happen. Um, so even if uh, you think, I love my old Bible, it has all my notes in it and everything else, that's fine. Get a Jesus Center Bible and see how it can complement um, your, your relationship with Jesus, because that's the point in the end. It's not about, uh, in the end, study materials or anything like that. It's as you read this Bible, it actually helps pour uh, fuel on the fire of your relationship with Jesus. So, and I'm also author of the Jesus Centered Life, uh, which is the the birth mother of this podcast. So, and it, that's important because the last uh, portion of the Jesus Centered Life book, which came out three or four years ago now, the last two thirds of it is a section called the Beeline Practices, and that's the series we're in now until the end of the year. And the Beeline Practices means. It's, it's a, a set of, I, I like to call it playground equipment, of ways to play in your relationship with Jesus that draw you into closer orbit with Him. And the, the word beeline comes from Charles Spurgeon, the Victorian preacher, who, uh, when he got ready to preach one of the many thousands of sermons he did in his lifetime, it didn't matter where he started in Scripture or what his topic was, he always found his way to Jesus. He called that beelining to Jesus. And that's what we do here on this podcast, and that, that's what these beeline practices are all about. They're things that you can try in your life that then become habits that um, uh, just de facto draw you into a closer orbit around Jesus, and when that happens, your life changes. Now, close, close orbit doesn't always mean circular, like perfect orbit around Jesus. It means an orbit can be an oval, an, ellip- an ellipses as well, where sometimes you're closer, sometimes you're far away, but... The, the, the thing that you're orbiting is Jesus himself, and that's the kind of life that we want because that's the kind of life that transforms us. So in, in this episode, unfortunately, we do not have the Beckinator again with us today. She is in the middle of a major project that she's launching in her, in her business, and it's taken up all of her time and attention, but I, I just went back and forth with her this morning, and she said she can't wait to be back on the podcast next week, so look forward to the return of the Beckinator in the next episode. But for today, we're going to explore the beeline practice of wallowing in mud puddles. Now, that phrase is something you've probably heard me use like a hundred times 
if you're a longtime listener to this podcast, wallowing in mud puddles is a phrase that comes right out of the Jesus-centered life, and it's a way, it's a metaphor that helps me to think about the way that I approach uh, what Jesus said and did in, in Scripture. So a mud puddle, if you think about it, um, is something that if you're an adult, if you come upon a mud puddle, you either jump over it or you go around it. You don't jump into it, unless you're a child. A child comes to a mud puddle and jumps into it and splashes around, because they still have a playful spirit that doesn't care so much if their pants get wet. So uh, Jesus, of course, said, you won't understand or comprehend or appreciate the kingdom of God unless you become like little children. And that's an invitation for us to jump in and splash around in mud puddles. And the way I, de I describe a mud puddle is anything, any story about Jesus, anything he said or did that we don't immediately really understand, or seems hard, or seems mysterious, or seems like it doesn't make sense to us, that's a mud puddle. So typically as adults, we come up to these, and it's so subtle we don't even notice it. We come up to these things, and, and we don't really, if we were honest, we don't really understand what's going on there, but we just say inside, ah, it doesn't matter, it's just Jesus, and we hop over the puddle. Well, the thing about mud puddles is uh, I believe that these hard, mysterious things about Jesus are really portals into the depths of his heart, and if we skip over them, we miss his heart. And so it's super important to jump into the puddle instead of around or over it, because if you don't, you'll miss the open door into his heart. But if you're going to jump in a mud puddle, you're going to have to be willing to get dirty, and you're going to have to be patient, um, because wallowing <laughs> takes time. So uh, today we're going to explore what it means to wallow in mud puddles with Jesus. And uh, here, here's, here's the, the kicker. If, if in the hard things about Jesus, we see his heart most clearly, then the, the way that we get there to that is we just simply pay attention long enough. That's what it means to wallow, pay attention long enough. There's a quote in the book um, that, that I lead off this little chapter on wallowing in mud puddles from Moby, the once mega popular um, pop artist Moby who, who uh, uh, was famously uh, a broken person. <laughs> I mean, he kind of lived out his mess in the public eye. And it's interesting that in the midst of that, um, he gravitated to Jesus and uh, came to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of it. And, and uh, I pulled out a little quote that, that came from that transition that he made that I thought was fascinating that fits in this whole idea of wallowing in mud puddles. Here it is. Here's Moby. I thought Christ was like this weird Santa Claus figure, but my friend told me, if you're going to talk about Christ, you should probably read the Gospels. So at least that way you'll know what you're talking about. So I did, and I was converted. <laughs> I just love the simplicity of that. It's so profound to me. He, he thinks he knows what Jesus is. Um, he thinks he knows what he is, and he kind of talks about him as if he knew who he was. But a friend said, well, have you really, like to use my terminology, wallowed in the mud puddles of Jesus at all? Have you paid attention to him at all? And Moby, got to hand it to him, he was honest, nope, <laughs> I haven't done that. Oh, I think I'll go do that. Oh, I'm converted. <laughs> when he actually slowed down to pay attention to Jesus, he, he was overcome by his heart. So that's what we're talking about here, and uh, I thought I'd tell you a little story of, of uh, to kind of, kind of give you a picture of what uh, wallowing in mud puddles is like. This is uh, I'm going to read this directly from the book because um, this is one of the iconic stories for me of um, what it means to wallow and why it's so valuable. So um, I was I was leading here. I'll just read this out of the book. I was leading a group of Bible college students through a deeper exploration of Jesus and his unpredictable behavior. We stopped at one of my favorite mud puddles in the New Testament. It's the story of the Canaanite woman who pleads with Jesus to cast a demonic presence out of her suffering daughter, but she's rejected by him and called a dog in the process, and that's in Matthew 15. 
So I asked the students to explore with a partner all of the possible reasons why Jesus responded this way. Then I checked in with the pairs to dialogue about their answers. Well, two young women were clearly upset by the whole, ups- whole assignment. In their back and forth with me, they insisted that the Jesus they were encountering in this Bible passage couldn't be the real Jesus. The dialogue, which had grown more and more frustrating for these women, finally ended with one of them saying, maybe dog was actually a compliment in that culture. Well, that's called jumping over a mud puddle, not wallowing in it. And what I mean by that is because it was hard and confusing and and uh, sort of upending of their typical way of seeing Jesus, they were trying as hard as they could to find ways to simply jump over the puddle instead of embrace the consequences of Jesus actually did this. So what are some possible reasons why he did? They didn't want to go there, so they jumped over it. So today we're going to start off with a conversation with my friend and longtime co-conspirator group, Jeff White. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about a project he's in the middle of right now where he's creating a resource that actually, uh, if you read it, forces you to jump into mud puddles throughout Scripture. So, Jeff, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, hey, Rick. I am happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Been, I've been a content creator group for a long time. Content, content creator is a fancy word for writer. Yeah. And so uh, I've been writing lots of stuff over the years. The last few years has been mostly children's books, like a children's Bible I've been writing. And, uh, but we've got a new project now, and it's a story Bible for adults. Yeah, and that's, what, that's why I wanted to talk to you today is you're the creative genius behind this thing. It's kind of like a... It's not a graphic novel, but it is an illustrated story version of the Bible. It's, I, I would call it, the reason it fits here in this conversation is that it's a more raw experience of these Bible stories. It's in the context of jumping into mud puddles instead of avoiding them or jumping over them or around them. You're jumping right into some, some really, in some cases, some really hard stories. And I think what's fascinating about this project is that um, because it's for adults, you're not shying away from sort of the raw or profane um, angle that these stories come from. And so tell us a little bit about the project, and then I have a few questions for you. Well, it's uh, essentially a story Bible for adults. And the, one of the things that makes it different, other than just being that in of itself, I think it's different. A lot of can't go to the bookstore and find a story Bible for adults. But it tells all the Bible stories from the first-person perspective. So each character tells their own story to hear Moses tell his own story and Eve and Esther and they're all speaking for themselves and telling the stories from their point of view and it's going to be illustrated it's going to be illustrated uh, by about a dozen authors from or illustrators from around the world and it's amazing it's going to be a beautiful book but it's also going to be a tremendous bible experience because it does dig deep into the dirt as you say. so and that's uh, let's start off with that so um one of the ethics of this project is really that you're 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 delving into things from a first person perspective and you're trying to get to the raw core of these things so i said the bible is sometimes a a raw and profane book in in and of itself but we don't treat it that way typically or we don't read it that way and that's some of the tension you've had to face in this project as well so why is it that we don't read these stories or or uh, understand these stories in their sort of raw, profane reality? Why, why don't we do that in general? Why do you need a storybook Bible that approaches it directly from that perspective? Why do we shy away from this in the first place? I think one of the big reasons that happens is because when we tell Bible stories to kids, we clean them up. Yeah. And we sanitize them, and we take out all the sex and the violence, and we make them uh, safe for kids to hear and understand and uh, I think one thing that happens, unfortunately, is that continues on into adulthood. We we, we keep hearing these stories. We just hear um, what we're familiar with. We hear the happy, good parts of the Bible stories and not the hard part and the confusing parts. And we wash over a lot of it, so it doesn't matter. But I think those details are something that really makes the stories meaningful, especially for grown-ups. I mean, I've written a story Bible for kids, so I know exactly what it's like to 
clean these stories up for a younger audience. But when we grow up, I think we're ready to grapple with some of this stuff and, and go ahead and tackle it head on. So, so th- that begs the question, then, what, when we sanitize these stories, what are we missing? What difference does it make if we sanitize them? What, and you can maybe talk about this from a personal perspective because you're trying to tell these stories through the eyes of a person. So you have to kind of get inside their skin a little bit to tell the stories. How have you in a, grown, been challenged uh, by having to do this yourself? Uh, what, what, what's the effect of it? Well, I, can, I think the best way to explain that is with a couple of examples. One of them is the book of Esther. It really struck me. This was a couple of years ago. I, I was reading on some blog about how um, m- moms were teaching their daughters to be Esthers. Hmm. And that really bothered me because Esther was a sex slave. Hmm. And when you read that story, everything about was a part of Esther's life was nothing that she asked for. It wasn't anything that she wanted. And in fact, she was a sex slave. Now, she was the queen sex slave. She was the main one that the king liked the best. But that says a lot about who she was and what she had to struggle with. And so when we want to understand that story, digging into where Esther was coming from and what was probably going through her mind and the emotions she felt brings so much more meaning and, and understanding of what that whole story is about than just glorifying her as some queen and she's just so brave and has all this courage and is really making it out to something that it was not. And another example, I think, too, is even more interesting for me is Moses. Moses, when you read the, like in, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews has the hall of faith and we read about these, these Bible characters who had just such tremendous faith and it seems unattainable, like these people had something that we could never aspire to. Um, but Moses was this guy, when you go back and read his story, I mean, I grew up thinking he was probably one of the greatest, most faithful people in, in the entire Bible. You know, he's the leader of the Israel. And, but when you go back and read the story, he didn't even know who God was when the hmm. story started. When God spoke to him in the burning bush, Moses said, who are you? Hmm. He, didn't even know, he didn't even know God. And throughout the entire episode of him going back to Egypt and leading the, the Hebrews out of Egypt, the entire time he argued with God and did not let it do it. He had a terrible attitude. Hmm. It was the last, I mean, calling him a faith leader throughout all of that time period was <laughs> would be a mistake because here's a guy who really struggled with God. He didn't want to do anything that God asked him to do. And I think that those kinds of experiences where people are doing things that they, they don't want to do, they didn't ask to do, they don't aspire to, and yet these are people who we hold up as people with great faith. What does that really mean? For us in our faith, I think there's a lot more that we can get out of that. Yeah. At least I can personally. When I when I can read about a character who's really struggling or doesn't want to be a part of something and yet knows that God has called them, to, there's a lot more meaning I can get out of the story. Yeah, it, it reminds me. I, I was a, asked to be a guest teacher in a existing adult Sunday school class that had about 100, 150 people in it. It had been um, established for a while, and these people. The people that led the class and normally taught the class, I'd say they, I mean, this is going to sound strange, but they sort of reluctantly asked me <laughs> to come and guest teach. And then what I did was very raw relative to, uh, I think we were exploring David. And um, so I went into the real David, not the David that we think we know in the church. And it made the leaders in particular in that class really uncomfortable there were a lot of people in the class that loved it because they just had never, like like the two examples you just gave, they had never seen David in this way, and it made him less of like having a halo around his head and more of a real person yeah. that you could relate to. And I guess the, the, the last question then is, well, if you do sanitize these stories, what real impact does that have in your relationship with God? I mean... What difference does it make if you if you experience a sanitized version of these stories versus a, a more raw version in your everyday relationship with God? What kind of impact would that have if you sanitize them? I think one of the things that people crave nowadays is authenticity. And when we sanitize these stories, it makes them out to be really no different than Aesop's fables or Grimm's fairy tales. I mean, they just they become something that they weren't originally intended to be. Hmm. And uh, when you can make these stories more authentic and put real people 
in the stories and talk about their genuine emotions and their struggles and all the things that they had to wrestle with going living through these things rather than painting them as these immortal you know almost perfect superhero type people and you see that a lot too you know these superhero bibles and other stuff not just for kids but we we carry that into our adulthood our perceptions of these characters is something that we can never attain to and i think that's that's a that's a big mistake especially if we want to grow our own faith by reading the Bible. I want to be able to relate to these characters and understand what they are really going through. And, and what I'm taking from what you're saying, too, is that is that this sanitizing process undermines the possibility of intimate relationship because it's built on something false. Yeah. It's not real, and therefore what you build off of it isn't real either. That's a big deal, um, actually. <laughs> that uh, I think one of the issues in our culture right now in the church is so many people developing a kind of a shallow, fragile relationship with God. It doesn't look shallow and fragile from the outside, but it is because it's been built along a sanitized version of who Jesus is, um, who the uh, people of faith are throughout the Bible. It's been built on something that doesn't really exist. It isn't a real way of building something, so it makes it inherently fragile, and then like Jesus' a parable of the house built on sand or the house built on rock, it's super important that you pay attention to what you're building on. <laughs> and sand is sanitized. That's how I translate all of this. Hey, thanks, Jeff, for uh, uh, peeling back the, the, uh, the hood on your project that you're working on, and it comes out uh, next August, August 2020? That's right. That's right. All right, we'll be talking about this more on the podcast, but uh, now we're going to transition of course, into what it means to wallow in mud puddles with Jesus. All right, so that, that's a great conversation about what it feels like, looks like, what the value of wallowing in mud puddle is. And remember, again, we're in our context, it's about pursuing hard things about Jesus or mysterious things about him or things we don't immediately understand. And you can tell by even this conversation with Jeff that these pursuits, when we wallow in these mud puddles, always involve tension. Like that story I said at the, I told you at the beginning of the two women who really had a hard time with the story of the Canaanite woman that Jesus calls a dog. Well, the th- room was thick with tension, and they felt extreme tension around this. These mud puddle stories always carry with them tension, and so I thought uh, uh, in this episode it would be interesting for us to explore uh, a major but really almost universally overlooked point of tension. Um, in two different encounters Jesus had. I call, the, I call, I call this, uh, these, these, two, these two stories um, the money bags and swords stories. So there's a teaser for you. So just imagine for a second that we have a, a rope stretched across a room and that I've handed it to a person across the room and they're holding on to one end of that rope. Um, so the rope is, is not full of taut tension right now because just one person is holding on to it. So imagine that that rope and that person holding that rope, imagine that that represents the first story I'm about to tell you. So there's nothing tense, there's no tension in the story I'm about to tell you because it's only one story. We need the second story to really create the tension. So, But this is the story from Luke chapter 9 when Jesus sends out his disciples without him for the very first time. So it's early on in his ministry, and he's decided uh, to send his disciples out two by two, uh, uh, into the villages surrounding without him, and their job description is really daunting. So I thought I'd just read you this this short little passage from Luke chapter 9 that sets this up. So again, picture in your mind, this is one end of the rope. Somebody's holding it, and this is the story at the end of the rope. One day Jesus called together his 12 disciples and gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. And then he sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing for your journey, he instructed them. Don't take a walking stick, a traveler's bag, food, money, or even a change of clothes. Wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. And if a town refuses to welcome you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you've abandoned those people to their fate. So they began their circuit of villages, preaching the good news and healing the sick. So kind of an iconic uh, story at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where um, he he not only gives them almost an impossible job description, heal the sick, cast out demons, tell them the Messiah is here, 
uh, a really difficult job description if you think about it. And then he makes it even more difficult by saying, don't take any money with you, not a walking stick, change of clothes, don't arrange ahead of time where you're going to stay. All of these extra things that make it even more difficult. Um, and um, uh, we've talked in previous episodes of the podcast that the purpose seems to be that he, he's wanting their dependence to be only on him, that he doesn't want them to depend on their normal means of control and safety and security. He wants himself to be their security, and so he takes away all those things. So that's one end of the rope, but I, I said there's another end of this rope, and there's that creates a tension. So imagine in your mind that now uh, across the room another person's picking up the other end of that rope, and between the two people across the room, they're pulling hard on it, that there's tension in that rope. So the second point of contact, on the, sec- the, the point of the rope across the room, is something from Luke 22. Now, this is just after uh, the Last Supper. It's just after Jesus tells Peter that he's going to be sifted like wheat by Satan and that he's going to allow it to happen. It's just, even before that, it's just after Jesus has been as blunt as he's ever been about what's about to happen to the disciples and how difficult their life is going to get after he leaves. But it's actually a good thing that he leaves because the Holy Spirit will come and uh, sort of in an inside-out way, teach them everything they need to know about him and give them power to do what he's asking them to do. But boy, they're going to need it because the, the times, Jesus says, are going to get dark. Lots of hard things are going to happen to you. And then he's really blunt about what's about to happen to him, that he's, that he's about to be gone and that uh, he's about to be executed. And it's hard after hard after hard thing, um, almost so much so that by the end of this Last Supper, that his disciples are just uh, sort of devastated by everything Jesus has told them. So that's what happens pr- just prior to the story we're going to tell here, the second end of the rope that creates tension with the first end of the rope. I hope that makes sense. Um, even if it doesn't, I can't see your nodding head right now, so I'm going to assume it does. But here's the second point of contact. It's in Luke 22. Here's what it says. Then Jesus asked them, the disciples, that is, When I sent you out to preach the good news, and you did not have money, a traveler's bag, or an extra pair of sandals, did you need anything? Now here he's referencing that Luke chapter 9 story of when he sent them out. He asked them, did you need anything? And they said, no. But now Jesus said, take your money and a traveler's bag, and if you don't have a sword... Sell your cloak and buy one, for the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. And here's the prophecy. He was counted among the rebels. Let me just pause there just for a second. Uh, This is an Old Testament prophecy that Jesus is quoting about the Messiah, that he was counted among the rebels. If you remember, Jesus was crucified next to two rebels. Um, They were insurrectionists, and uh, he was in the middle of them. So... Uh, criminals. And so Jesus is saying, this prophecy that I, that the Messiah would be counted among the rebels is about to come true. I'm going to be crucified between two of them. Um, so then he continues, yes, everything written about me by the prophets will come true. Well, look, Lord, they replied, we have two swords among us. Well, that's enough, he said. So I just want you to slow down and track with this. Jesus is saying, hey, um, remember when that time when I said, don't go out with any of this stuff? Well, yeah. Well, this time is different. This time you need uh, money and a traveler's bag and extra pair of sandals. And bo- oh, by the way, you might want to sell something and buy a sword. <laughs> and the disciples are like, buy a sword? Well, Jesus, we have two right here. And Jesus says, okay, well, that's enough. Then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. Well, he walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Well, then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples, only to find them asleep exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. 
But even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus spoke to the leading priests and the captains of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. Am I some dangerous revolutionary, he asked, that you come with me as swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. So there we have these two ends of the rope, these two points of tension. And there's obvious tension here. In one case, Jesus says, don't take any of that stuff with you. In the second case, he says, take all that stuff with you now. And, oh, by the way, pick up a sword because you're going to need one. So uh, the first thing, now this is an example of what it feels like to wallow in a mud puddle. That's what we're going to do now. Now we have the tension that is the clear indicator that there's a mud puddle here, something we don't understand. There's actually lots that we don't understand in between these two encounters. Uh, and there's many things embedded in here that don't really match the idea we have of Jesus. Isn't that true? When we're slowing down and taking a look at this, there's things that Jesus is saying and doing here that, that don't match our sort of pristine view of who he is. That's a clear indicator that this is a mud puddle, and it's time to slow down and not skip over it, but wallow. So what we're going to do now is wallow a little bit. And the first step of that is, and again, we're doing this so that we can find the depths of his heart, that this is a portal. Uh, that's why we're slowing down, the portal to his heart. So the first thing is to ask ourselves, the, uh, you know, what are the obvious tensions or contradictions in these two stories? So what questions do they produce? So I asked this of my group the other night. I asked that we went through the, the tension of these two stories, and I said, what are the questions you have? Let me read you some of the questions that they saw in, in the tension between these two stories, and I'll add a couple of my own. So one of them that's obvious right off the bat is um, Jesus says, you know, bring your swords with you. And then when they actually use their swords, he says, stop doing that. <laughs> so uh, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. He says, you better sell something and buy yourself a sword. Oh, you have two swords? Well, that's enough. Bring those. You get to the uh, to this uh, to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the the uh, Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders come with swords to arrest him. And of course, the disciples are thinking, "Oh, this is why we're supposed to bring our swords." There's going to be a violent confrontation that Jesus wants us to defend him in, and they ask him, "Lord, do you want us to use our swords?" And they don't even wait for an answer; they just start swinging. And so one tension or contradiction here is, why would Jesus say, yeah, bring those swords, but then say, yeah, don't do that when they're used in an obvious circumstance? Um, so the, another obvious one is, well, why before do they uh, go out uh, and Jesus says, don't take any of your, this, this stuff with you? And then the second time, now you're going to go out and actually you need to take all that stuff with you. Why is that true? Um, so what you know, they were with him before, and he said, You don't need any stuff. Now he's going to be gone, and he says, You need all this stuff with you now. So, what's that about? Um, so, and he he tells his disciples, um, to bring their swords with them, but then he sort of complains to the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers. What, really? You had to bring swords with you? So it's okay for his disciples to bring swords with them to this encounter, but he criticizes the Jewish leaders and the Roman guard for bringing theirs. Well, what's, what's that about? Um, a couple of other ones that—now, uh, those are the ones that the group came up with that, that they saw obvious tensions or contradictions in. So, uh, you know, also uh, a, kind of a little spin on this, uh, on one of those is, well, why did he encourage dependence— in the first case, but not encourage dependence on him in the second case. It's a little bit of a twist on one of those. So um, we have some questions that help to describe the tension between these two stories. 
We're starting to wallow. And part of wallowing is taking account for what the tension is. Um, so the, the, I think the way to pursue now that you've gotten those questions out in the open, the way to pursue them is to use the, uh, I guess you could call it the technique of Sherlock Holmes. And I love what Arthur Conan Doyle, how he described the technique of Sherlock Holmes. It's quite simple, even though it's not simple to carry out. It's a simple concept. Here it is. Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Let me read that again. Once you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. And that's kind of how you can look at this story and these questions, by the way. These, once you start grappling with some of these questions, you can start to narrow down toward some you know, probable answers by starting to recognize what must be impossible. For instance, uh, we can say about this story that one thing that's impossible is that Jesus intended for his disciples to violently wipe out the Roman army. We can say that it's impossible that Jesus was expecting them to come to, to the, gar the Garden of Gethsemane with their two swords— and that he was expecting them to wipe out the entire Roman army by killing all of them with their two swords. So let's just say that's not possible. That's not why he said your two swords are enough. Um, so that's an example of how to move through these questions, thinking what's impossible and what seems improbable, but it could be true. Th that's the area that we want to land in, uh, improbable but could be true. So it gives us freedom to guess about what's going on here. So it takes some of the pressure off when we come into these stories where we're wallowing in the mud puddle. It takes some of the pressure off of having to get it exactly right. And is that perfect? Is that the perfect explanation? Who cares? Let's just start to narrow down between what's impossible and what seems improbable, but maybe that could be true. Well, let's, let's take note of that. Let's play around with that side of things first. So the end game here the, the question we really want to answer um, in the midst of the tension between these two encounters is what really explains Jesus' strange and contradictory behavior? What's the explanation for it? Why would he act this way? Now, do you see here why wallowing in this mud puddle gets us access to the depths of his heart? Because if we can begin to approach um, an understanding about what explains his strange behavior here, um, we're starting to get at what motivates his heart. If we can answer that question, we're starting to get at what motivates his heart. So, of course, um, uh, when I was with my group asking these questions, I told them to take the questions they, they had come up with that rose out of the tension between these two things, and then think about what they consider impossible ways to go based on what they know about Jesus and the situation, and then brainstorm, well, if it's not it's not impossible, it's just improbable, put that on the other side of this little column that I had given them. I gave them a two-column uh, kind of handout, and so they were scribbling stuff that they thought was impossible on one side, and things that they thought, eh, that seems improbable, but maybe, and they put that on the other side. And then uh, we, after I gave them about 20 minutes to marinate and chew and wallow in this mud puddle over these, um, then we all got back together to see what they had discovered. Now, I wander around amongst the groups while they're doing this to listen in on their conversation, and this was one of those where um, you can see just th the way that you've experienced these two stories as well, there's probably tension in you right now. Like, I really don't get this. What, why? why would th this is a mystery. You can feel the sort of momentum in you that makes you want to just jump over this. Yeah, I don't get this, so let's just leave it behind. <laughs> Why worry about it? So that was the tenor in these uh, foursomes that I had last night. There was four groups of four that we had last night, and they were chewing on this, and I would sit for a little bit and listen to them, and the common refrain was, wow, this is hard. And I said, that's right, but remember what how we're approaching this. We're approaching it like Sherlock Holmes. Start off by identifying things that are impossible and then move to the improbable. So when they came back, I think I, I, th I think it'd be uh, helpful to just 
call out some of the things that they discovered as they pursued this. And then the light bulb that went off over my head uh, when I heard what they had discovered. Now, this was an interesting night because I told them I have never heard anyone anywhere describe the the reason, the explanation for why there's tension between these two encounters. Why does Jesus say and do what he's doing here that seems so contradictory? I've never heard anyone describe it, and even more, I don't really understand <laughs> why he did these things myself. It's a group journey that we're on here, and I need you guys—this is what I told him last night—I need you guys to, to be Sherlock Holmes so that as a community, what we discover, maybe we'll find the thread that we need. And I think we did. So let me tell you first um, some of the things that they brainstormed. Now remember, this is on the side of the column that says improbable but could be true. So not all of these things did we pick up and go with, but I want you to hear some of the things that came out of their wallowing process. So, so the first group said, now this is way out there. The first group said, well, the two swords, when Jesus said the two swords are enough, they said, well, maybe those two swords are like metaphors um, for um, violence. So the first sword is what people expected the Messiah to do. The people expected the Messiah, and then this is true, for centuries and centuries, um, they looked forward to the arrival of the Messiah, who they expected would be a military leader who would end their oppression through violent means. That, that's what they expected to happen, that the Messiah would also be a military leader who would quash their enemies. And it, it became an expectation that when the Messiah shows up, well, he's going to show up with a sword. And of course, um, Jesus made it quite clear that he was not that kind of Messiah. And that's one of the reasons why so many people, including Judas, were disappointed with him. He was not what they expected. So that's the first sword to this group. And then the second sword they, they see as a metaphor for the second coming, when um, the world will be wiped out. <laughs> so it's so fascinating that, that, that they, they're trying to bring metaphoric meaning to these two swords. So that was the first group. And um, uh, with each group, I asked um, a, an important question. When Jesus says to the men, uh, after they say, we have two swords, and he says, that's enough, I asked the groups to really chew on and wallow in, well, what does Jesus mean by that's enough? Enough for what? If you can answer that question, when Jesus says, that's enough, what does that mean, that's enough? Then I, I have a, a sense that we'll be getting at the truth about what's happening in here but you're going to have to wrestle over why did he say that's enough and what did he mean by enough? So, so some of the groups uh, uh, tried to directly answer that. What did Jesus mean when he said it's enough? And one group said that Jesus sees no purpose in the swords, or does he? So in the first time he sends out his disciples, they faced adversity, but not violent opposition. So they said, perhaps um, that's enough means that in the first encounter, they didn't really didn't need swords because they weren't going to face violent opposition. But now that he's leaving, they will face violent opposition, <clears throat> and perhaps they're going to need them because the second time they're going to be sent out, they're going to encounter violent opposition and power. So um, another group said, the swords represent earthly power. <coughs> the swords represent earthly power. So uh, they said maybe Jesus is feeding into their temptation to pick up and use earthly power, and he's putting them in a situation where he's hoping they will say no to that temptation, and they compared that to Jesus's temptation in the wilderness when Satan tempts him, uh, one of his temptations is to give Jesus power over all the earth, and Jesus says no to it. So they compared that temptation to the temptation that's introduced to them now, where they bring their swords to this encounter, and Jesus wants them to also um, not pick up that temptation, not give into it. 
So uh, they pointed to the Jesus' temptation in the in the wilderness. Um, another group said that the swords, um, uh, uh, once they had swords, that meant that they could act on their own. Now they had a weapon. So if they had no weapons in this encounter, and the soldiers and Jewish leaders show up with weapons, then there's really nothing they can do. They have nothing to fight back with, but now they do. They, 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 they are given back the opportunity to exercise control in this situation, So, and they can act on their own if they want. They don't even wait for Jesus to tell them whether they should start fighting. They just start fighting. So um, another group said the, they bring the Jesus wants them to bring the swords with them to um, essentially uh, cast them in the light of rebels. He's about to be crucified as a rebel, and he wants his followers to look like they're rebels. Um, and finally, the, the last group said um, that the swords uh, give, them, uh, give the disciples enough reason to sense that they have power, that the swords they carry with them give them a sense that they have power. And he wants to, to, uh, ha- to put them in that place where they have this sense that they have some power. What I pointed out, and the light bulb that went off for me, uh, now this is all the discovery process of the, the Sherlock Holmes part of all this, is just extracting everything we can and wrestling over it and putting out some guesses there. But I saw a thread in, in what they had discovered. And one thing I threw out there at the end was, remember, after this encounter, Jesus goes through the, his trial, his monkey trial and his crucifixion, and then the three days later, the resurrection, and then the next time you see these disciples all together in public, they're in the temple square, basically jabbing their finger at all of the people who just conspired to kill Jesus. And they know that they're risking their lives by doing this, but they bring no swords with them. You never see the disciples pick up swords. Their methodology, as they spread out into the world, is never one that includes swords. After this encounter in the garden, there are no more swords ever. So now track with me here. Um, Jesus knows that his followers have expected a Messiah who will conquer by violence for centuries, for generations. They can't get this out of their head. So at the end of things, when he's headed for this confrontation, he tells them, you better uh, sell something and pick up a sword. And we have two swords. Oh, that's enough. Did Jesus mean that two swords was enough to fight the entire Roman army? No. In fact, if they attacked the Roman army and harmed even one person, they'd have the entire Roman army descend on them like an anvil and wipe them out. Are two swords enough? Of course they're not. But when Jesus says, it's enough, he must be saying, it's enough for my purposes. (laughs) And here he is, again in this environment, where the disciples believe in the back of their heads, this really must, in the end, come to violent rebellion. That's why he must want us to bring our swords with us. Let's use them now. And when they do, Jesus says, no, no more of that. So I think this is an exclamation mark that Jesus is planting in them before he goes to the cross to say, look, let's end this now. That little seed of doubt you've had in your mind about whether this is about violence and about taking the world by violence, let's end this now. Because we once again, we're in this situation and you decide to use your swords. I know I told you to bring them with you, but I want you to never forget, we're not doing this. And he heals the ear of the man whose ear had been hacked off. Think about what that must have felt like for those disciples. I think the message they got and then lived out for the rest of their lives because they were all martyred, Um, all of them except for John who died alone on the island of Patmos. They were all martyred in violent ways, and they did not fight back with violence. So to the end of their lives, they did not pick up the sword. The message they got in this moment was that last vestige in us about what the Messiah is really about, it's gone. This is not how he intends to transform the world. It's going to come otherwise. And then it all makes sense to them after Jesus' resurrection. The Spirit comes, 
and the Spirit comes to give them knowledge and understanding about Jesus, but also power to do what he's asked them to do. But it's not the power of the sword. And in order to accentuate this, to put an exclamation mark on this, he tells them two swords are enough when they clearly aren't. <laughs> and he's, I think he's hoping here, when he says two swords is enough, that his disciples will be awake and alive enough to what he's been trying to tell them, that they realize, hey, two swords aren't enough. <laughs> we showed up with our two swords, and even if we went out and bought a sword, it's not going to be enough. Look, it's not going to happen. Um, we're, we are not going to overtake the world through violence. There's another way. So there you have it. Um, that's what it looks like to wallow. Now, is that the only interpretation of this tension? No, but it was our interpretation as a community that night, and it makes sense to me. It, it, it reveals something about the heart of Jesus to me, and it deepens my love and respect for how sly he is <laughs> and how intentional he is about setting the stage for what's true and what's, what's about to come. It, it impresses me about him even more. That's the effect of wallowing in this mud puddle. You come away even more impressed with Jesus, not confused by him. That's the point. So, But we need a community to wallow in our mud puddles. We, we need people around us to wrestle this out with, the, with each other. Um, th- we need each other to wrestle out these, these questions. Don't do it alone. Now, there sometimes when uh, uh, I come across a mud puddle and I'm alone— I'll wrestle it out with Jesus. I'll start to try to chew on this. But it's best done with other people where you wrestle out the possibilities the way Sherlock Holmes did. There you have it. That's what wallowing in mud puddles feels like, looks like. This is a way of drawing near to the heart of Jesus. Uh, remember, you can check out um, uh, in next year, if you can re- uh, remember this, that Jeff White's book, Eyewitness, will be coming out next year. We'll be talking more about it in future episodes, so we'll, uh, we'll give you a link to it when, it when it's ready to come out. But um, just be, be thinking about this, because it's a fantastic way to facilitate wallowing in mud puddles throughout the Bible through these stories. So uh, we'll remind you about it as it gets closer to the time. So, and uh, remember, um, the next time you feel tension around a story about Jesus, something he said or did, um, stop, recognize the tension, Think of those two, the two ends of the rope stretched taut and go after it. Wallow it instead of jump over it. And so remember, you can find out more about uh, everything we've talked about today on paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. You're looking for season four, episode 37. And this is paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe with iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you again next week with the Beckinator. 